Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. My name is Sarah Tabbitt, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at the University of California Benioff Children's Hospital, and it is my great pleasure today to have a chance to talk with uh, Kathy Masato, who is a nurse scientist at the Herma Heart Institute at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hi, Sarah. I'm great. Thank you. Um, Kathy, I was hoping for some of the listeners that you wouldn't mind going through a little bit of your educational pathway and career pathway. Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Ironically, just yesterday was my 32nd anniversary of becoming a nurse. I graduated from my bachelor's degree in 1986. Um, If anyone would have told me that I would someday find myself here um, back in 1986, I would have laughed them right out of the room. Um, I just wanted to take care of kids and That's where I started at the bedside, um, general peds unit, and then got connected to the cardiac folks at Children's Hospital. And the rest is history. I've had many different hats, um, got sort of accidentally connected to research. That was never my intent, but it was the questions that parents were asking me that as a nurse and as a young mother myself at the time, I couldn't answer about long-term outcomes for kids with heart disease, and that led me into a path of research to try to answer some of those questions about long-term outcomes for both the children and the families in terms of psychosocial implications and particularly neurodevelopmental outcomes. And did you need to do any additional training to um, pursue the research pathway? I did. Um, I got my bachelor's in nursing, as I said, back in 1986, and that got me a long way, but I wanted to be able to lead studies and ask some of my own questions. And it was sort of an eye-opener for me to realize that you had to have a terminal degree to get funded and to be a principal investigator on major studies. And so I was in the midst of pursuing my master's and an opportunity became available to go directly to a PhD program. Um, And I just decided that research was where it was at for me. And so it took me a long time. I went to school while I was working full-time, had two young children, um, went to school part-time. It took many years, but it can be done. And if that passion is in your heart that you want to ask those kinds of questions or lead studies, I would encourage anyone to pursue that because higher education is really the way that you change your thinking about things, the way that you generate new questions and ideas and really can have the opportunity to add to knowledge and to science. And and, I mean, from my perspective, I think you're one of the um, first leaders in nursing um, to have a doctorate and to try and undertake um, research uh, projects where you were the principal investigator. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges you had to getting research projects off the ground and funding um, specifically related to the fact that you came from the PhD from a nursing perspective? Sure. Um, You know, there's, I think, a misconception that nurse PhDs only do nursing research. Um, 
personally, and this may be a little heretical, but personally, I've never felt that I do just nursing research. I do research like any other scientist. I just happen to come to it from a nursing perspective. And so I bring a different lens to the question. Um, my first endeavor in research was our surgeon had helped us collect all of the patients who had ever received homograph valves to look at outcomes and freedom from reintervention in patients who had received homograph valves. And we assembled a cohort of over 300 and some patients. And I said, gosh, could I ask them about their quality of life? Because that's what I wanted to know. He said, sure. Do you know how to do that? And I was like, uh, no, but I'll figure it out. And so turning to mentors, um, both inside and outside of the discipline was key for me. One of my earliest mentors was a critical care physician, Ramesh Sashtiva, who had some insight into quality of life research. My first study was a hot mess, I can tell you that. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I got to ask these parents and children questions about how they were really doing. And their feedback was incredibly enlightening for me. So, so it's, you know, you have to be willing to take a chance and to fail a few times. Um, my studies are much more refined and theoretically driven today, but that's taken years to develop. And how about funding? Did you feel like you had an equal opportunity to obtain funding as a physician scientist? Uh, funding is challenging and continues to be. Um, I entered the PhD world right around the time the economy was in kind of a bad state and funding really decreased in general for scientists across the board. Um, my research focuses on behavioral and psychosocial outcomes, which some people might call the soft stuff, but in the end, that's what people live with. It's how they're doing. It, it might not be the gradient across a valve or their blood pressure, but it's how they feel about living the life, the hand that we've dealt them. And so sometimes I feel that that behavioral health research does not get the same level of priority as other medical or basic science, but you just keep trying. And you know, ironically, I've found some of my best support through philanthropic donors who had a connection to cardiac patients or the heart world for one reason or another, and they they understood the importance of this. And so I keep trying for the big national funding. Um, it's harder, but it's out there. And you just have to look for different sources sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of being a bedside nurse and what impact that had on your research pathways and your research questions? Yeah. Um, for me, it was being the nurse with those young parents after the surgeon would walk away, having explained the procedure he was going to do. And, you know, we're going to open this and close that and put the shunt here. And he would leave the room and I would look at these parents and say, do you have any questions? And they would look at me and say, is he going to be able to ride a bike? Can she have a baby someday? Are we going to regret this? And those questions really stopped me in my tracks because I didn't have answers. I didn't have data-based answers. I had stories. I could say, you know, Johnny looked pretty happy in the clinic yesterday, but there was no data back in the 90s to really tell us how these children were going to do, what was the impact on the family, financially, socially, psychologically. And so 
I wanted to be able to give better answers to those moms and dads. And, you know, it was those questions at the bedside that I went home with at night and thought about and thought, you know, those questions deserve answers. And that took me from the bedside to ultimately the computer, um, which is a different kind of bedside. But but now I can look a mom in the eye and say, I know a little bit about what's going to happen and what to expect and what you need to prepare for. And I feel really good about that. And what's your take on what you've learned from outcomes research? Do you feel like prior to doing the research, you were maybe more encouraging with the parents about outcomes and now a little less or the other way around? I think it's the other way around. I think today... I'm more honest. I'm more pragmatic. Um, when I started in this business in the 90s, we just hoped to get the child out the door. And we patted them on the head and we shook mom and dad's hand and said, good luck. You know, we did our part. It's up to you from here on out. And now I talk about um, parenting, uh discipline, expectations for children, that you're not doing the child any favors by putting them in a glass box and treating them like nothing can ever happen to them, that you need to try to normalize things as much as possible. So today, I think having a little bit of that data in hand, I can be more pragmatic, um, more honest about what to expect, um, do's and don'ts about where this child should go, we were the first program in the country to start neurodevelopmental follow-up and to really say, we expect these kids to have delays. That's okay. Let's not stick our head in the sand and pretend it's not there. Let's do something about it. So that, that feels good. Like we're being proactive today, I think. You must be proud of where that's gone. I mean, it's now expected that people have neurodevelopmental follow-up programs, and, and I mean, that's a huge step. It is. It is. In fact, I remember being in Miami, it's got to be 15 years ago, and standing up and saying to Jane Newberger, when are there going to be guidelines? How, how are you going to tell us how to deal with this? And she said, do you want to be on the paper? <laughs> You know, it took many years, um, but now we do have a little bit of a roadmap for what to expect for these kids, what we can do both in the hospital and outside of the hospital. And I think, you know, here today we're focused on cardiac critical care. That's a little microcosm of time and space that our children go through. It's, it's very important. It's a very critical time, but we hope all of our kids spend a lot more time out of the ICU than they do in the ICU. And so if learning how to ride a bike, going to school, maybe getting held back a year to catch up, you know, those sorts of things become okay for families, then I think we're, we're doing them a favor by just being, like I said, proactive and honest about what to expect. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to put together a research project right now, um, what would be your optimal team? Every study I've done or participated in has been multidisciplinary, and I think that's the only way we can do good research. Um, like I said earlier, we each bring a unique perspective, a unique lens to that portion of the child's care that we might understand better than someone else. So I'm not an expert in anesthesia, but I can tell the anesthesiologist something about nursing and what it's like to be at the bedside 24-7. So my ideal team would be rich with interdisciplinary perspectives, 
Um, depending on the focus, we just launched a, st a study looking at parenting stress that includes a social worker, nurses, a psychologist, um, a critical care specialist, um, an outpatient developmental pediatrician. So I think keeping your perspectives broad and open to the unique um, input that everybody can bring is always important. Can I shift gears a second and ask you, what are your thoughts on how to advise nurses starting out in the field to be empowered at the bedside, to feel that they can advocate for their patients and feel that they're on an equal uh, footing with the physician and the other, other members of the ICU team? Well, I think it's important that nurses feel like they have an important voice in the conversation. Um, it's not always easy, but we're all there for a reason. We're all providing an important part of care. Uh, I think most of our institutions have shifted to interdisciplinary rounds that include the bedside nurse, often include the family's perspective. Nurses typically haven't always been good about speaking up and using their voice. And that would be one thing I would encourage is bring your perspective to the table, um, highlight what you know, ask the questions you want to know more about, learn from others. We're in academic institutions. Most of us are involved in teaching multiple levels of, of trainees. And nurses can offer a lot to teach our, our residents and fellows as they move through our program. So I think it's important to speak up, to know that you bring something valuable, and not be afraid. Don't ever feel secondary. Um, I think the best teams, the most effective teams, don't have an authority gradient. I could walk up to my surgeon, my chief of anesthesiology, and say, I want to know more about this. I, I don't understand this. And every nurse should feel that empowered. Mm -hmm. That's really well spoken. Let me ask you a, a question about work-life balance. Um, obviously, you've accomplished a lot in your career and raised children. Um, do you want to say, comment something on how you juggled all that or advice for nurses at, a right, at that early stage, trying to juggle a career with a family? Yeah. Um, it's juggling. It's, it's fun when you can keep all the plates in the air. Uh, sometimes one falls on your head here and there. I, I've missed a few um, teacher conferences, um, but I've also walked out of the hospital to go to a volleyball game that I needed to be at. And so it's a matter of knowing where you're most needed at that moment and also being humble enough to know that you're not in control of everything. It's not all about you. Sometimes your kids need you more than the bedside does. Sometimes the bedside needs you more than your kids do. I've missed birthday parties, um, but I've also been there when a child came off bypass after the fifth time, and I was the one talking to that family, and they needed me at that moment, and that's okay too. So it is a juggling act. But it can be very rewarding. And looking back, I, I've got the pictures of all the places we went as a family. I've got the memories of the things I, I've done as a clinician. And, you know, looking back, I just don't want to have any regrets. And I don't today. It's, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm guessing that means you wouldn't have done anything differently? 
I wouldn't have gotten old so fast <laughs> if I could change that. Um, if there's a magic pill to reverse all that, it's um, it's been too fast, but it's been a lot of fun. And I, I just am so amazed at where we've come as a specialty to have societies like this that didn't exist 20 years ago, to have kids who are beating the odds and showing us all what can happen with the success of our ICUs and our operating rooms and our nurses. Um, it's been an amazing ride. Well, you've had an incredible amount to our field, and you should be really proud, and you're a great mentor for a lot of nurses to look up to, and I appreciate your time today. Thank oh, you, Kathy. Thank you, Sarah. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the BCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution.